I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We're preaching through the Gospel according to Luke, and our practice is to start at the beginning of a book and work our way through to the end of the book. So today we're in Luke chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 to 30. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30. As you're turning there, I'll briefly point out to you that this passage is essentially a snapshot of Jesus' entire message. Um, in a sense, what will happen in these verses foreshadows the rest of Jesus' entire ministry, both what He preaches and how people respond to Him. So this is Jesus' message, this is Jesus' preaching in summary form, but as we're going to see, it's a message that does not fit with the religious expectations of Jesus' day, and perhaps it doesn't even fit with the religious expectations of our day either. So, with that background in view, I invite you to listen as we read from God's Word uh, together. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 16 of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me, because He has anointed Me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent Me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, Jesus went away. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Father, we do ask for your help now to believe what it is that you have revealed to us in the Scriptures regarding yourself and the Lord Jesus Christ, and also, Father, about ourselves and about why the Gospel is necessary and why it's good news for people like us. Lord, please keep me from error. Please grant Your people discernment and help us, Father, to hold fast to the truth and remind us, Father, that in the truth You are holding fast to us as well until the day the Lord Jesus returns. And we pray in His name. Amen. Several years ago, I attended a rather unforgettable chapel service along with a few hundred other people we had gathered for the chapel in the typical way, and the speaker seemed like your typical kind of guy. 
and he even began with a typical kind of question for, for chapel. He asked us this, what do you think Jesus would do in a crowd this size if he were here this morning? That's an interesting question, but that's also pretty standard stuff if you've been to a chapel before. What would Jesus do, you think, if he were here? But then the speaker made a very untypical statement. He answered his own question by saying, if Jesus were here today, he would preach the gospel in such a way that 90% of you would leave either angry at him or offended over what he said about you. So much for a typical chapel service, right? I mean, the room went silent, and everybody was looking right at the speaker. But then he went on to deliver a pretty insightful message, and he began to explain how the gospel according to Jesus is not what many people, especially many religious people, assume it to be. Contrary to what many people assume, the gospel actually begins with saying that no one is righteous. Not a single person. Neither the flagrant sinner nor the respectable churchgoer. Everyone is equally guilty before the holy God. You see, that's why some folks, especially religious folks, would either find Jesus offensive or leave. It's because the Gospel, according to Jesus, is actually very jarring. It's a jarring message. It's jarring because it challenges so much of what we assume to be true about ourselves and so much of what we assume to be true about God. And that's exactly what we find in our passage this morning here in Luke chapter 4. We find Jesus doing precisely what that chapel speaker suggested He would do. Jesus preaches the Gospel in such a way that people literally revolt. They literally revolt. I'm sure you noticed it as we read. This is the first full description of Jesus' preaching in Luke's Gospel. It happens in His hometown synagogue among people who have gathered to worship God on the Sabbath day, no less. And yet, what do these apparently pious people do in response to Jesus' good news? They try to kill Him. They run Him out of town and try to kill Him. You see, that chapel speaker was on to something, wasn't he? The Gospel, according to Jesus, is very jarring. It's unsettling even. But for those with ears to hear, it's also the best news in all the world. So here's what we have to do today, friends. We have to listen to Jesus preach the good news. And I'm just going to tell you in advance, we have to do so with the recognition that some of what Jesus says will convict us. And some of what Jesus says will even challenge us to see ourselves in a new light. Because the Gospel according to Jesus is, is a jarring message. It's good news, but it's jarring. But that's part of the blessing of God's Word. That's part of how the Gospel works. It doesn't leave us where we are, but instead it challenges us and ultimately reshapes us according to the truth. So specifically, I think there are four insights into the good news that we see here in Luke chapter 4. Each one coming from Jesus' own ministry. Four insights into the good news. The first and the last have to do with Jesus. And the second and the third have to do with you and me in relationship to Jesus. So that's where we're going. Four insights into the good news from Christ Himself. Let's begin then in verses 16-21 to 21 where we see very simply that the good news is centered on the person of Jesus. 
The good news centers on the person of Jesus. The passage opens with Luke setting the scene in verses 16 and 17. You can see it there. Jesus has returned home to Nazareth. And as was His custom, He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. But on this Sabbath day, Jesus is not simply present to worship, He's also present to participate. You'll notice in verse 16 that Jesus stands up to read. And then verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to Him. This is apparently the regular practice in the synagogues of Jesus' day. One of the men would stand up, there would be a reading of the Scriptures, and then there would be a short lesson or a mini-sermon, you could say, on the reading of the Scriptures. So as Jesus stands up in verse 16, His intention is very clear. He stands up in order to teach the people of God from the Word of God. But that's not all that Jesus intends at this point. Not only does He take the initiative to stand up, but Jesus also takes the initiative to pick out a very specific passage. You'll notice that they give him Isaiah and he unrolls the scroll until he gets to Isaiah 61. That's verse 18 in our text. Jesus finds Isaiah 61 in in the reading. You have to understand, friends, this is a striking selection on Jesus' part. We're probably not all that familiar with Isaiah 61, but the people in Jesus' day were very familiar. This was a passage full of expectation and a passage full full of hope. So let me just give you a little background to why this is such a significant text for Jesus to pick. The focus of Isaiah 61 is an individual whom Isaiah calls the servant of the Lord. If you read chapters 40 through 55 in the book of Isaiah, you'll see what a pivotal role this servant plays in the plan of God. The servant of the Lord is the one who will deal with the people's sins, even being pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah 53 tells us. The servant is the one who will signal that God's kingdom is coming. A kingdom that is so magnificent, it can only be called a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah 42. So the servant of the Lord is a significant figure in the plan of God for His people. But in Isaiah 61, what stands out about the servant of the Lord is He's anointed by the Holy Spirit to deliver God's people. He's anointed by the Spirit to bring freedom to the people of God. That's the good news of Isaiah 61. God is raising up a servant. And this servant will deliver God's people from bondage. It will be like the exodus from Egypt, but in a much greater way. The servant will come with Holy Spirit power to set God's people free. So do you hear some of the expectation, friends? Some of the hope that is in this reading from Isaiah? Jesus has picked a passage on purpose that is brimming with the hope of redemption and deliverance and even restoration for the people of God. But then notice what Jesus does next. If His selection of Isaiah 61 is striking, then Jesus' sermon on that passage is absolutely astounding. Notice verses 20 and 21. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the people in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today... This Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Friends, it's hard to describe how staggering Jesus' sermon is. Without any hesitation, Jesus says this Scripture from God's Word about God's promise, this Scripture is fulfilled in Me. The redemption, the deliverance, the restoration, all of that, Jesus says, I'm the one who will give it to you. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm Him. 
But there's more. Notice also that Jesus says the promise is fulfilled today. Do you see that? Verse 22, today. What God promised so long ago has finally come to pass right now, today, in your hearing, in this very synagogue. I'm the one, Jesus says. I'm the servant of the Lord. I'm the Spirit-anointed deliverer. I'm the one, and I've come to fulfill the promise of God's Word today. Friends, understand this has been part of Luke's point in laying out these chapters as he has. Think about how things have been building up to this first sermon for Jesus. What happened at Jesus' baptism? Luke chapter 3. The Spirit descended upon Him and remained upon Him like a dove. He was the Spirit-anointed, beloved Son of God. And now here in chapter 4, what is that Spirit-anointed Son doing? Proclaiming the good news that Isaiah 61 promised so long ago. Good news that's fulfilled now in Jesus' ministry. Do you see the profound glory? Brothers and sisters, the profound depth of glory. God's plan is moving towards its fulfillment. All the centuries of waiting and hoping, all of that is coming together right now and standing at the center of it is the Lord Jesus Christ. This man from Nazareth. Scripture is fulfilled in Him. Redemption is found in Him. Deliverance is found in Him. If you want to know God, friends, then you must do so through Jesus Christ. The good news, Luke is telling us, is centered on Jesus and it's centered nowhere else. Now, even as I say that, there's a question that pretty quickly arises. Jesus came preaching good news, Luke tells us. But as you know, news is meant to be heard. News is meant to be received. So the question is this, to whom does this good news come? Who receives the good news? To whom does it come? And look, our natural assumption might be that this good news comes to people who are worthy. To people who are sharp enough to put Isaiah 61 and Jesus' preaching together and to make the connection. People who are smart enough to say, ah, yeah, I see it. That's our natural assumption. It comes to people who are worthy. In fact, I would say that the average person on the street thinks this about Christianity, that the good news is for good people. I think that's what the average person out there thinks. Good news is for good people, for worthy people who are sharp enough to get it. But that natural assumption, friends, is actually dead wrong. According to Jesus, at least. And that's the second insight we need to see in this text. The good news comes to those in need. The good news doesn't come to those who are worthy. The good news comes to those in need. Amen. Look back to verses 18 and 19, where Jesus reads from Isaiah 61. And notice the kinds of people who get this good news. It's quite the list. The poor, verse 18. The captives, the blind, and the oppressed. That's quite the list. Now, what is Jesus getting at here? Is He offering some sort of commentary on a broken society? Is His concern to address the, fallen, the ills of a fallen world? Well, at one level, yes. Yes. When you read the book of Isaiah, God commands His people to love and do justice. That's why Christians should absolutely care about issues of morality and righteousness in the public square. It's not a culture war. It's being concerned for the things that God's concerned for. 
And along with that, Scripture also tells us that one day God will put these things right in His new creation. One day there will be no more poverty, no more captivity, no more disability, no more oppression. Those societal ills will be undone, the Bible says, and righteousness and wholeness will define God's new creation forever. So, on one level, when Jesus quotes Isaiah, He is saying something about the need for this broken world to be put right. He is saying something about that. But at another level, friends, Jesus is making a much deeper point here. The brokenness of society is not Jesus' main point. Rather, it's the brokenness of the human heart that gets Jesus' attention. It's the brokenness of the human heart. Think about it, friends. The poor, the disabled, the captive, the oppressed. What do each of those groups have in common? They are people who are well aware of their need. They're well aware of their need. And that's Jesus' deeper point. You see, these are concrete examples of humanity's deep spiritual need. Take the captive, for example. The captive, the prisoner, knows quite clearly his need for deliverance. He may be imprisoned justly or unjustly, but whatever the case, the prisoner is keenly aware of his need to be delivered. What's more, a captive knows that his deliverance will have to come from the outside. He cannot save himself. And friends, that gets to the heart of Jesus' message here about the good news. To understand the good news of Christ, you must first understand your own need. To understand the good news of Christ, you must first understand your own need. I had an old preacher tell me once, before you can help people get saved, you got to get them lost. you got to know your own need. You must first recognize that in spiritual terms, you are poor, blind, captive, and oppressed. You have no riches to buy your way into God's presence. You cannot see the truth to know the way that you ought to go. And worst of all, you don't even have the freedom to pursue that way if you could see it. Apart from Christ, we're enslaved to sin. We're in bondage to this world. And listen, you have to come to grips with that truth, friends, if we would ever truly understand the Gospel. In order for it to be good news, you've got to see your need. Listen, Jesus Himself is going to make this very clear in the next chapter, in Luke chapter 5. For whom did Jesus come? Whom did Jesus come to save? He tells us, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not, called to, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You hear the emphasis, friends? To embrace the Gospel of Christ, you must first embrace the truth that you cannot heal yourself. You cannot free yourself. You cannot save yourself. You need Jesus to do for you what you cannot do on your own. You see, it's not the quote-unquote worthy person who is close to the good news. It's not those who are sharp or smart or well put together that are near to understanding the Gospel. It's actually the opposite. It's the person who is well aware of how far he is from God that is close to understanding the Gospel. It's the person who is well aware of her brokenness. The person who is well aware of her need. Friends, that's the person whose eyes are being opened to see the good news. Not the worthy, those who know their need, because the Gospel comes to those in need. Now, we're here in church on a Sunday morning. We're all respectable people for the most part. So I want to just stop here for a second and try to help us understand why this particular truth matters for us as a church. There's some personal application that we could make, 
But I want to focus just for a minute on why this truth is massively significant for us as a church. So let me tell you a story that I think illustrates why this is important for us to get right. Several years ago, I heard about an old friend of mine who had decided to go back to church. Uh, She had had a pretty rough home life growing up. Parents divorced back and forth between two homes. And she had run pretty headlong after the world for the better part of a decade. But in the Lord's mercy, she came to the point of recognizing that something needed to change. And so she decided to, to try church, as the phrase goes. And naturally, she picked one of the larger churches near her house. And as Sunday got closer, though, she started to have some second thoughts. Will there be other people like me at this church? Will I wear the right thing or say the right thing? Those those were actually the questions that she was asking. Will I wear the right thing or say the right thing? Worst of all, what if I see someone from way back in the day who outs me as having a past? Those are the questions that she was asking as she was going to go back to try church. Do you know what happened? She went once, and I don't believe she's ever been back. Now, did that church run her off? Nope. Did they intentionally hurt her or reject her? Nope. But do you know what else they didn't do? They didn't preach the good news according to Jesus. They didn't preach the good news according to Jesus. They did not make it clear from the sermon to the songs to the conversation among the members. They did not make it clear that the Gospel is for sinners like us. Like you and me. There was not a church-wide level of joy that broken people get redeemed by Jesus. There was not a congregation-wide sense of gratitude that we were lost, blind, captive, and oppressed. And Jesus came to save people like us. There wasn't a clear celebration that the good news is for people in need. Brothers and sisters, that's why this truth matters. That's why this truth matters. That's why it's absolutely essential that we preach and celebrate the Gospel according to Jesus. Because we want to be a church where people might walk in the back door worried about what they wear, but then they walk back out into the world knowing that there's good news for broken people. That's why this matters. And listen, that's who we are. That's what I'm trying to get us to see. That's who we are. Broken, lost, blind, captive, oppressed, once, and now made free in Christ. That's why this matters for a church. That's why it matters that we get this right. So how do we do that? We want to be that kind of church. How do we do that? How do we make this truth clear? How do we, everything we do, how do we make it clear that the Gospel is for people in need? Well, again, we look to the, to the passage and Jesus helps us. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has something to say to this, though it's not easy for us to hear. This is the third insight from verses 22 to 28. The good news confronts our self-righteousness. The good news comes to those in need and the good news confronts our self-righteousness. After Jesus sits down, the crowd in the synagogue is astounded. Look again at verse 22. And all spoke well of Him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from His mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? So initially, the crowd is astounded. They marvel at Jesus' skill in teaching. This is important. They're impressed with His rhetorical skills. And that's it. 
right? They marvel at his words. You, you, did some, you did some good words, Jesus. You said some good things. That's it. That's all they care about. But that initial impression doesn't last, and it's obviously not very deep. Notice their question at the end of verse 22. Is not this Joseph's son? Remember, this is Jesus' hometown. So these people watched him grow up. They remember him playing with his friends outside the synagogue. They recall him uh, working in Joseph's carpentry shop. They know this man, in other words. So how could they possibly be expected to believe what Jesus says? Fulfilling Scripture? The Messiah? I mean, you can, you can almost hear the objection in the synagogue that day. Come on, Jesus, we know your parents. We know your siblings. This guy's married to your sister. We're not going to believe you. You can't expect us to believe you. Surprisingly, though, Jesus doesn't back down. Instead of ignoring their comment, Jesus actually confronts their unbelief. This is one of the most surprising things in the gospel. Oftentimes, Jesus provokes people, not sinfully, but he will confront them. He doesn't let things go. I mean, notice what he says, verse 23. And Jesus said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So Jesus anticipates the crowd's objection. They want him to do some sort of sign to prove his claims. He's apparently already been doing some signs in Capernaum. And they say, hey, we heard what you did down the road, and we're not going to take less than what they got. So if you did miracles in Capernaum, you do miracles in Nazareth, and then we'll believe you. Do a miracle, Jesus. Do something, and we'll believe you. Jesus is not going to play that game. Notice his response, verse 24. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. It's, it's striking, friends, that Jesus does not meet their demands. He doesn't perform a sign. He doesn't do a miracle. But what's more, Jesus also turns the tables on the crowd. When he says no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, he is recalling the history of Israel from the Old Testament. And he's saying these people in Nazareth are acting like Israel acted in the Old Testament. What did Israel often do to the prophets of God in the Old Testament? Well, they rejected them, didn't they? They spurned them. They rejected them. They put Jeremiah in prison. They accused Isaiah of being a traitor. Old Testament prophets were often rejected. And that's what Jesus is saying is happening right here. Just like Old Testament Israel, this hometown crowd is showing their true colors by rejecting God's Word through God's messenger. He's telling them that they're acting like unbelieving Israel. And then to make His point even clearer, notice what Jesus does next. Verses 25-27, to 27, He uses two illustrations from the Old Testament. One about the prophet Elijah, and the other about the prophet Elisha. And both illustrations have the same point. It was not Israel who received the blessing of the prophet's ministries. It was foreigners, Gentiles, a Phoenician, and a Syrian. Elijah went to a Phoenician widow, even though there were pr plenty of Israelite widows. And Elisha healed a Syrian leper, even though there were plenty of Israelite lepers. So two prophets, both of them sent outside of Israel, both of them indicating that God's grace would come to those beyond Israel. Now you've got to understand, friends, that the ministries of Elijah and Elisha were not exactly high points in Israel's history. We like the stories because Elijah does things like call fire down from heaven, and that sounds exciting to us, but it's actually really bad that he has to call down fire from heaven 
against the people of God. Right? Elijah and Elisha were not high points in Israel's history. In many ways, Israel during those days was very far from God. They were ignoring His Word. They were walking in rebellion. But at the same time, Israel in those days mistakenly believed that they were not in danger. That, that judgment would not come on them. Just go back and read First and Second Kings or, or read the book of Jeremiah and you'll hear the people in Israel saying, God's not going to judge us. We have the temple. We have the, we have the Scriptures. We worship on the Sabbath day. We make sacrifices. We're not like those Phoenicians and Syrians and Philistines. We're religiously orthodox. God's not going to judge us. That's what Israelites in the Old Testament often said. And that, friends, is what Jesus is getting at here. The crowd in Nazareth is in a very dangerous position. They're in a very dangerous position. By rejecting Jesus, they're following in Israel's footsteps. They don't see their need. And they cannot fathom why they, of all people, people worshiping in a synagogue, why would we need good news, Jesus? They can't fathom it. You see, the crowd in the synagogue is convinced that they're already good enough. They believe that their righteousness, their religious performance is enough to make them right with God. And that self-righteousness, friends, keep them from, keeps them from hearing the good news. It keeps them from hearing the good news. Do you see the danger? The good news is going to spread out to the Gentiles. It's going to go to all the nations of the earth while the people who have been waiting for centuries will miss out because they refuse to see their own need. We don't need good news, Jesus. We're already worshiping in the synagogue. We don't need what you're saying. And if you think I'm being too harsh towards the crowd, notice what they do in verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. The crowd is furious. They're seething with anger. Why? Because Jesus dared to tell them the truth. Because Jesus confronted their hardness of heart and warned them of where they are headed. Sure, they're worshiping in a synagogue, even listening to God's Word, but even synagogue worshipers need good news. Even people who think that they already know God need good news. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's what the crowd can't see. Friends, what I'm trying to get us to see is that sometimes the greatest hindrance to embracing the Gospel is not all the things that we've done wrong. It's all the things we believe that we're doing right. Or to say it another way, self-righteousness is one of the great stumbling blocks to gospel faith and to gospel growth. We can so easily convince ourselves that our religious performance makes us pretty good already. And over time, that mistaken perception ends up distorting our view of the gospel. It distorts how we view other people as though all those broken people are the ones who really need Jesus. And just as dangerously, it distorts how we view ourselves as though we're not also lost, blind, captive, and oppressed and in need of Jesus' good news. I heard a wise Christian man say once that gospel maturity means I recognize my need to repent of my own repentance. Not even my religious actions make me good before God. Not even my religious actions make me acceptable before God. Even on my quote-unquote best days, I still need the Gospel far more than I think that I do. And so, friends, I think a faithful response to this text 
means that we have to ask ourselves some hard and some honest questions. Where do our lives display a self-righteous attitude that distorts and misunderstands the Gospel? Notice I didn't say, do our lives. I just said, where? Because it infects all of us. Where do our lives display a self-righteous attitude that distorts and misunderstands the Gospel? Am I keeping up appearances as though God were merely interested in my performance? Am I acting as though there is a category of sinful people that is somehow below me? Am I actually trusting more in my religious actions than I am in Jesus? Those are hard questions, I think. But they're questions that confront us from this synagogue in Nazareth. The Gospel comes to those in need, and in order for us to get that truth right, both as individuals and as churches, we also have to allow the Gospel to confront our self-righteousness. Well, we noted at the outset that this passage is a snapshot of Jesus' entire ministry. There's one final insight that reminds us of where things are going. And then we'll close with this. It's from verses 29 and 30. The good news will culminate at the cross. The good news will culminate at the cross. The crowd is angry, verse 28, but that anger turns murderous in verse 29. Notice again, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. We should note, friends, that it is not despised tax collectors or hated Roman soldiers that are trying to kill Jesus. It's worshipers from the synagogue. It's religious people, in other words. It's people who one minute ago were listening to God's Word being read, and this minute they're trying to kill the one who comes to fulfill God's Word. It's not tax collectors that try to kill Him. It's synagogue worshipers. And as far as Luke's Gospel goes, this is the last time Jesus will ever go to Nazareth. It's the last time He'll be in His hometown. So at a minimum, this should remind us that the Gospel does at times invite hostility and that the Gospel does come with a cost. But more importantly, this brief little snapshot of the crowd's anger should remind us of where Jesus' ministry is headed. He is headed for the cross. Jesus' preaching of the good news will cost Him His life. Now, it doesn't happen yet, as verse 30 tells us. Jesus slips away at this point, and I have no idea how He did it. He just, it says He departed from there. How? I don't know. He got away. He departs. He slips away since there's more for Him to do. But even so, this, this initial picture reminds us of where things are headed. Jesus came preaching the good news, and that good news will take Him all the way to the cross. But in that sense, friends, it's actually a very fitting reminder of why the Gospel is good news in the first place. To be clear, it's not good that the crowd hates Jesus and wants to kill Him. That's evil. And it reveals the depth of wickedness that resides in the human heart. So the crowd's response is not good. But it is good, brothers and sisters, that Jesus, the Son of God, would subject Himself to such treatment at the hand of sinners. That is good. It's good news to know that while Jesus escaped here in chapter 4, the cross is coming in chapter 23, and Jesus will not walk away at that point. 
When the time comes for the cross, Jesus doesn't slip away. No, He picks up the cross and He carries it to Calvary's hill and then He willingly sheds His blood to pay for the sins of His people. That's why the Gospel is good news, friends. That's why the Gospel is good news. Sinners like us have no hope of saving ourselves, but God in His grace has provided a Savior who has come to redeem both the broken and the self-righteous. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus today by faith, then I pray right now that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to see and believe the good news about Christ. You cannot save yourself. But there is a Savior who has laid down His life for sinners like us. And if you're thinking, but you don't know all the things that I've done, that's right, I don't know them, but the Lord Jesus does. And He shed His blood for sinners like us. And so turn from your sin and confess and believe. And the Bible says you'll be saved. If you are a Christian this morning, if you are trusting in Christ alone for salvation, then I, I, I pray that this snapshot of Jesus' ministry has reminded you, and I hope that it's even encouraged you, as to why the Gospel is truly good news. It's because it centers on Jesus. It comes to those in need. It confronts perhaps our most pernicious problem, our self-righteousness, and it will culminate at the cross where, praise God, our salvation was accomplished once and for all, not by us, but by the Son of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word that tells us the truth about the Lord Jesus, about You, and about who we are.